Amen. Good evening. Good singing tonight. And uh, it's a joy. Go ahead and take your Bible to 1 Samuel 22. 1 Samuel 22. Uh, David has been on the, the run from Saul, and he's just got sort of uh, kicked out from Achish in the previous chapter. And in uh, 1 Samuel 22 and verse 1, it says, David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And his brethren and all his father's house heard it. They went down thither to him. And everyone that was distressed and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him. And he became a captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the time tonight to be gathered together. We pray that you would meet with us in these next few moments around your word that you'd speak to each heart that's here this evening, Lord. Uh, Father, that you would bless, strengthen, encourage uh, your people. Uh, Father, rebuke, rebuke us where necessary. Uh, Lord, that we might come into conformity with your will and your word. We thank you for it. Thank you for our time tonight. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it says some people came to David and uh, get a simple little outline right here that someone uh, welcome to use. Uh, those that were distressed, in debt, and discontented. It's already alliterated, packaged up, ready to go, all in one verse. Uh, I'm not going to hit those three points tonight, but uh, I do want to talk about contentment. Contentment. Uh, we see the word there, discontented. The only time that that word shows up in the Bible, or really discontent in any form, uh, contentment shows up, and I don't know, I think 15, 16 times in different forms, but here, these that came to David, it said they were discontented. We all wrestle with being content, don't we? I, I certainly do. I think I'm on pretty good ground kind of speaking for all of us tonight. Uh, you'd have to be pretty young to say you've never experienced any discontent. And even pretty young, I don't know, Resax like he's pretty discontent from time to time. So uh, contentment can be difficult. Uh, Webster defined it as the state of mind in which one's desires are conformed to his lot, whatever it may be. Well, that's easier said than done, though, isn't it? Contentment. Uh, stories told of a Quaker who once offered a plot of his land to anyone who was content. And years passed by, and finally someone came to claim the offer, and the Quaker replied to him, well, sir, if you are content, then why do you want my land? You know, sometimes even our, our curiosities can be an expression of our discontent. M much of the world around us, certainly the world of advertising and social media, preys almost exclusively on our discontent. Nothing's good enough. I always want something more. I want something that somebody else has. Keeps me scrolling, right? Keeps me scrolling. There's something down here. I can't wait to find it. Got to keep up with the Kardashians or whoever we're supposed to be keeping up with. Sometimes it's, well, it's just curiosity. Well, I know, but our curiosity can sometimes lend itself to really just an expression of our discontentment with our life. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll, we'll just look at a few verses 
probably move along fairly quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I want to look firstly at contentment commanded. Contentment commanded. And even that might sound strange to some because as with a number of things, we sometimes confuse a feeling with something that really is just a characteristic that the Lord requires of us. We do that with love, of course, because so much tells us that love is a feeling. And we think that way about contentment sometimes. Well, I just either feel content or I don't. There's nothing I can do about it. But God doesn't really command feelings per se, but he commands us to love one another. He commands us to be content, content. But that can feel like a tall order. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, skip down to verse 20. Actually, go back to verse 18. Paul is talking here about marriage and uh, so forth, up, leading up into that passage. And he says in verse 18, Is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. I'll let you dwell for a second on exactly how that would happen, but you can tuck that away <laughs> for another time. Is any called an uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Now, obviously, there's a, a spiritual application and a, a, a dispensational application there. But he says in verse 19, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Art thou called being a servant? Care not for it. But if thou mayest be made free, use it rather. For he that is called in the Lord being a servant is the Lord's free man. Likewise also, he that is called being free is Christ's servant. So the Lord is telling us to be content in our calling. Now, we don't typically as Americans like that, you know, master-servant sort of language. It's kind of foreign to us in a lot of ways. Although to most people throughout history, that's normal talk. Right? That's how most people have lived their lives. And, and the Lord is simply saying, hey, if you were born a, a free man, as he calls it, if you're a master, if you're a, a landowner, if you're the, the boss, then don't get high-minded. Use that as the position God has given you and make sure you treat those below you well. And if you're in a position of being a, a slave, a servant, the employee, as it were, he says, then act accordingly and be content in the calling that God has given you. Uh, again, as our, in our culture, in our society, that's sometimes difficult for us to get our minds around. We have pretty much all grown up in the culture of you can be whatever you want to be. You can do anything you can set your mind to. And granted, we live in the land of opportunity, as it's often called, and, and that's great as far as it goes, but the Lord also commands us to be content with where we're at. And we need to be careful with that. That doesn't mean to be content with mediocrity. It certainly doesn't mean to be content with sin. But it does mean to be content with our lot, if you will, our station in life. In Luke chapter 3 and verse 14, uh, it says, and, he, and the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. That's an easy thing to be discontent with, isn't it? How many times have you had to say, you know what, they're just paying me too much. I got to go in there and get this settled. Uh, 
you need to back off. I mean, this is ridiculous. You're overpaying. <laughs> That's usually not the direction our discontent goes, does it? But not being paid enough, hmm, that can be a little more difficult to be content with. Hebrews 13.5 says, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. I like the juxtaposition of those truths there. He says, here's the reason, if you will, for being content. Because you have God who's told you he'll never leave you or forsake you. And in contrast to whatever it is we're discontent with, that ought to wash away a whole lot of that discontent if we'll, if we'll really apply it. But contentment is not only commanded in Scripture, it's also contrasted. Uh, jump back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Familiar verses. But in Genesis 2... In verse 17, the Bible says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now we know what happens here, right? God gives them the command, and are they content with the restriction that God gave them? No, and here's kind of the rub in my mind, is that if you jump back to verse 16... It says, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Every tree is available, one tree I don't want you to eat from. And what do we get? I've got to have the one tree that God said not to touch, not to eat from. It reminds me of a this cartoonist who had drawn uh, two mules, each one of them, they're on the two sides of a fence, and they each have their heads stuck through the fence, eating the grass on the other side. Both fields of grass are equally green, probably equally delicious, and both their heads are stuck through the fence, eating the grass on the other mule's side, and underneath it just said, discontent. And really, what is it that makes us discontent is the fence, the fence. Somehow, you know, we know the saying, the grass is always greener where? On the other side. Why? Probably because their water bill is higher than yours. Discontent. I'm in a field of lush grass, but the neighbor's just looks better. And I've got to have that. God said we could eat of any tree we wanted to except that one. So let me see, which one do I want? Now, I know Satan had his hand in that and so forth, but there's a lesson for us. Rules and restrictions. Liberty and limits. And we need to be careful with that as parents as well, or employers, whatever the case may be. There's a lesson for us there. We need the fences. We need the rules. But we have to be careful about trying to hem people in with just rules and fences and regulations. Fences can confine, and when fences are built to keep people in, we call that something, <laughs> a prison. And that's not what God designed them for. He designed them for our protection. He gave them bountiful options, bountiful choices, but they weren't contented, contented. 1930, a lady by the name of Henrietta Garrett died at the age of 81 in Philadelphia, and unwittingly was the cause of the largest case of inheritance litigation in American history. 
She left no will to her $17 million estate. At the time of her death, she had one known relative and less than 10 friends. Since then, attempts to prove relationships to her have been made by more than 26,000 people from 47 states and 29 foreign countries represented by almost 3,000 attorneys. In their efforts, relatives have committed perjury, people have faked family records, changed their own legal names, altered data in church records and family Bibles, concocted absurd tales of illegitimacy. Twelve have been fined, ten jailed, two have committed suicide, three were murdered. Her state has increased to over $30 million and is still unsettled. Why? Discontent. Something that I want to get my hands on that I can't have. No shortage of examples in the scripture, but let's look at a couple. Uh, Go over to 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel 11. We could look at many, but let's just look at a couple. 2 Samuel 11, we we won't read the whole chapter, but most are familiar with the the story of David and Bathsheba. Verse 3, and David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And she came in unto him. Now, we know how this story goes. David takes her, ends up having his, her uh, husband, Uriah, killed. But go over to chapter 12 for a second. I think we find a, a similar pattern here. In chapter 12, the prophet Nathan comes to David in, in God's stead, if you will, and relays this story. And he gives him this example of a man that, has just one little sheep and uh, how the rich man that has many sheep comes and takes this one man sheep. And David is incensed that someone would do this. And Nathan says in verse seven, and Nathan said to David, thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel. And I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. Now listen to this. And I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. You see the pattern? We get discontent and we act like God's trying to hold out on us. Adam and Eve had their choice of everything with one restriction. They're just like those mules getting their heads in the fence because the grass seems greener somewhere else. David's the king. He's literally on top of the world and on top of his house when he gets involved in this sin with Bathsheba. But when God comes to him, he points out his wickedness. He gives him an illustration to show him how wicked it was. But then he says, David, I would have given you whatever you'd asked for, but you didn't bother to ask. You just had to have what you wanted, discontent. Jesus said, ye have not because what? Ye ask not. When's the last time we got discontent? And boy, if we stopped to even think for a minute, have we even asked God for this thing we think we need? Or do we just think, like so many have in the scripture, well, God's a big crumb grudging, killjoy. He's not going to give me what I want anyway, so... I'll just take it. I'll just act 
on my discontent. Look over uh, another chapter, 2 Samuel 13. Here we have the story of Amnon with Tamar. And uh, Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab there, verse 3. The son of Shemaiah, David's brother, and Jonadab was a very subtle man, kind of like the serpent, the Bible says was subtle. Verse 4, and he said unto him, why art thou being the king's son, lean from day to day? Wilt thou not tell me, and Amnon said unto him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. It's interesting that now this friend, this subtle friend he has, gets him involved in another sinful situation with a woman, in this case, a sister, and then you go down to verse 13, and look what happens. Tamar is reasoning with him, and she says, and I, whither shall I cause my shame to go? And as for thee, thou shalt be as one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, I pray thee, speak unto the king, for he will not withhold me from thee. You see the pattern here? All of these were people with Many options, in most cases, people of power, wealth, authority, who could have what they want, but they won't go about it the right way. They won't ask the king. They won't ask their heavenly father. They just have to act on their discontent. Unfortunately, it's so often the fence that makes the grass look greener. Something in our sinful nature that just wants the thing that we're told we're not allowed to have. And named Greg Easterbrook coined a phrase called the progress paradox. He says, life expectancy in the United States has nearly doubled in the last half century. Per capita income has doubled since 1960. Our standard of living, living has risen to levels that our great grandparents could not have imagined. Following World War II, the average size of the American home was 1,100 square feet. Today, it's over 2,400 square feet. Following World War II, most homes had one room for every two people. Today, most homes have two rooms for every one person. I assure you I'm helping skew the statistics on that one because we have nowhere near two rooms for every one person. But... By most any measure, our affluence, our health care, our leisure, technology is beyond what any in history have ever imagined. We have more of everything except contentment. When polled, the average person who labels themselves as happy has changed very little since the 1960s. But the average person who calls themselves content has plummeted and continues to plummet. The percentage of Americans who suffer a bout of depression has climbed to over 25% with no signs of abating. And this staggering, almost 10% of Americans suffer at least one incident of major debilitating depression per year. Discontent. Surrounded by goodness and blessings, and yet discontent. Go over to 2 Samuel 19, just ahead a few more chapters while you're there. Contentment is commanded. It's contrasted in the Bible, but it's also characterized. 2 Samuel 19, in verse 33, we read about a man named Barzillai. 
he's going to go with David over to, to accompany him into Jordan. Verse 33 says, And the king said unto Barzillai, Come thou over with me, and I will feed thee with me in Jerusalem. And Barzillai said unto the king, How long have I to live that I should go up with the king unto Jerusalem? I am this day fourscore years old, and can I discern between good and evil? That's 80, Pastor Muncie. Yeah. It says in verse 32, he was a very aged man. But he didn't, he didn't call it 420s, though. I think that's, you're on to something there. It's 420s. That's different. But and I like how your wife does it, frankly. It's a level. Don't call it a year. You're at level 80. See, that way you're exalted. Yeah. That's, no, that's the way we do it. Um, I am four score, verse 35 years old. Can I discern between good and evil? Can thy servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Can I hear any more the voice of singing men and singing women? Wherefore then should thy servant be yet a burden unto my lord the king? Thy servant will go a little way over Jordan with the king. Why should I, uh, the king recompense me in such a reward? Let thy servant, I pray thee, turn back again, that I may die in mine own city and be buried by the grave of my father and of my mother. This is a man that's content. Content. He's offered pretty much whatever he wants. He can accompany the king. He'll be taken care of. But he said, you know what I really want is I just want to be with my family. Be with my family. Go over to 2 Kings chapter 4, since you're not far away. 2 Kings chapter 4, quickly. 2 Kings 4, we read the story that's oftentimes labeled the, the great woman of Shunem. When Elisha comes and her and her husband... Uh, set up a house, a prophet's chamber, as we've come to call it. And she does this for the man of God. And the man of God wants to return the favor in verse 13, 2 Kings chapter 4. And he said unto him, he's giving his servant Gehazi instruction, he says, say now unto her, behold, thou hast been careful for us with all this care. What is to be done for thee? Wouldest thou be spoken for to the king or to the captain of the host? And she answered, I dwell among my own people. Here again, she's offered an audience with the king. The king will give ear to whatever request she wants, but she says, you know what? I dwell among my own people. I'm with my family. I have what I really need. I am content with my circumstance. Go over to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs 30. Something about contentment. Proverbs 30, these are the, the words of Agur, the son of Jekah. And he says in verse 7, Two things have I required of thee, deny me them not before I die. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. Now, most people think that means drive through, but I don't think that's what it meant to them. He said, lest I be full and deny thee and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. What is he saying? He's saying, Lord, let me be content. Don't make me too wealthy or I'll be inclined to think I can take care of myself and forget you. Don't make me too poor lest I steal and take your name in vain. Lord, help me be content. Content. 
Paul said in Philippians 4, verse 11, not that I speak in respect for want, for I have learned, learned, in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I think Paul's stating very succinctly that contentment is not a feeling. It's not a result of our circumstances being what they want, what we want them to be. It's the result of us having a biblical view of our circumstance and thinking about them the way God wants us to think. You know the story of the Midas touch, probably, right? That everything I do could turn to gold. Right? Ecclesiastes 5 says, He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. And if you know the story of Midas, you know that it actually ends up being a curse. Well, he loved it at first when he could just touch stuff and it would turn to gold, but then he found that when he got thirsty and he grabbed a glass of water, guess what? The water turned to gold too. And that doesn't make very good drinking. What we want turns into a curse. Proverbs 27, verse 20 says, hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. Never satisfied. We think that when we can just have what we want, when we can just be like so-and-so, when I can just have a million followers on YouTube, but testimony after testimony says that that life is often empty. It's certainly empty without the Lord. It's it's a bridge that just keeps falling off into nowhere. You keep thinking you'll get there and not. Contentment, as someone has said, is not having what we want, but wanting what we have. Proverbs 37, 16, a little that a righteous man hath is better than the riches of many wicked. Contentment. This is a, a season for discontentment for many. It's a season for depression for many. But about, oh, am I going to get everything I want for Christmas? Or can I afford to give everybody everything they want for Christmas? Let's be contented. To swear is wicked because it takes God's name in vain. And to complain in discontent is wicked because it takes God's promises in vain. I don't know if you, any of you read the, the little Uh, Calvary Contender, that small devotional. Uh, Yesterday's devotional had this in it. In the third century, Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage, wrote to his friend Donatus, It is a bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world. But I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and good people who have learned the great secret of life. They have found a joy and a wisdom which is a thousand times better than any pleasure our sinful life can offer. They are despised and persecuted, but care not. They are the masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are Christians, and I am one of them. Henry VI uh, says in the Shakespearean play of the same name, he says, my crown is in my heart, not on my head. My crown is a crown of contentment, And it is a crown which kings seldom enjoy. We'll close with this, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6. 
Paul says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. My charge, Christian, is that let's be content with our lot in life. Let's, let's be content with what God's given us and his blessings, which are so rich. Let's keep him in mind all through this Christmas season. Let's get focused on what is right. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Sometimes it's difficult, but it's well worth the effort. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word tonight. I pray that, uh, Lord, these verses that I know are, are familiar to most. Uh, Lord, would have renewed impact in our hearts and our minds. Uh, Lord, may we strive to be content as you would have us to be, that we would be mindful of the truths of your word, and Lord, that we'd be pleasing unto you and rest in you. Lord, we pray that you'd have your way as you close out this service in Jesus' name.